Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Rick, for the invitation to share God's word with you today. Uh, I'm going to start with another role besides the preaching role because I'm also one of your missionaries. And I see Steve Myrick out there, and the missions department uh, has endorsed the mission that I'm a part of. And so I just wanted to thank you for your support for that ministry. It's called Global Discipleship Initiative, or we use the um, acronym GDI. And the mission of this organization is to establish reproducing disciple-making movements in various countries around the world. Uh, we are in Nepal and Romania quite heavily, have national directors in those, those areas. Uh, our focus is around transforming and multiplying disciples through what we call microgroups. Microgroups are groups of three or four, people meeting together seriously around studying God's word, especially through discipleship curriculum that we've written, and so that people not only grow as disciples, but they then learn to reproduce themselves as disciples and grow more disciples and more microgroups. So... I uh, just wanted to thank you and have this opportunity to uh, express my appreciation for your support in that ministry. So let me turn us, our attention now to the subject of the morning. Our text of Scripture is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, Pastor Rick has already mentioned that there's an outline in the bulletin. You have this smiling face of Maddie Cook on one side and an outline on the other side. And uh, it will take you through what I'm going to cover in this text. So if you could keep that in front of you, and, and if, if you have a Bible or an app, uh, keep, keep this text in front of you too and keep it open. So Paul writes this classic passage of Scripture. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Over a generation ago, a man by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a book with an intriguing title. His title of the book was, Your God is Too Small. And it's so true, isn't it? And when we get out to the day-to-day existence of our life and the drumbeat of our life, sometimes our problems get big and God is get pushed to the periphery of our life and he shrinks in size <clears throat> as if he can't manage the things of our life. Israelites had this problem as well. You might recall as they were poised to go into the promised land, uh, Moses decided he was going to send spies into the land so they could see uh, what the enemy territory was like. And so he selected a spy from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They went off into the land and they came back with a report. Report was, this is a land flowing of milk and honey. In fact, the grapes were so large that they tied a bunch of grapes to a pole and put it on the shoulders of two men and carried the grapes back. They were that large. But The grapes also reflected the size of the enemy. They lived in fortified cities. And when the Israelites compared themselves to the giants in the land, it says that they felt like they were grasshoppers. And so there were two reports that were issued. One was the majority report from 10 spies that says, the enemy is too much for us. We can't handle this. They're too big. But Jacob 
<coughs> excuse me, Joshua and Caleb issued the minority report, and they said, we remember that God delivered us from the Pharaoh in Egypt. He promised us the promised land. Yes, we can do this. But because the majority report was 10 of the spies, the Lord said, you can't enter the land now. That generation has to die off because your God has shrunk to such a size that we can't accomplish it. Does that ever happen in our lives? Where we need to reframe our existence around the size of our God so that our problems and challenges shrink and our God gets bigger. Well, I hope that's what will happen as we look at the Christ that is revealed in this scripture uh, this morning. I, I call Jesus here the cosmic Christ, the Lord of over, over all creation. And we'll get to see the size of the God that, that uh, Paul talks about here in this passage of scripture. About a generation ago, there was a, a blasphemous musical commercial that had the tagline, when you've said Budweiser, you've said it all. Any of you remember that? Now, so even you beer lovers, I have to say, that was a bit overblown, right? Uh, and I like to say, why should the devil have all the best taglines? So I'm taking that and repurposing it for this morning's message. When you said Jesus, you've said it all. And Paul teaches us that Jesus is the last word about God, he's the last word about creation, and he's the last word about redemption. So let's dig into to this text of scripture this morning. First thing we notice is that Jesus is the last word about God. Let me ask you, what would we know about God if God had not taken the initiative to make himself known to us? You see, we are these finite puny little creatures on this kind of dusty ball floating in the universe, right? Now, what kind of analogy can I compare that to? It's kind of like we're ants in an anthill, digging little tunnels, scurrying around with our little bit morsels, and then there's this giant human being that casts a shadow over this anthill, and the ants kind of scurry a little faster in terror because of this shadow. We're kind of like those ants in comparison to the size of our God. I know that's not a very flattering image, but uh, it feels like that's kind of helpful to help us understand that. So what can we know about God unless God reveals himself to us? And in Christian theology, we have talked about the revelation of God in two categories. The first category is that God reveals himself in nature, general or natural revelation, we would say. And then there's a second category, which we call special or supernatural revelation. Jesus has been the one who has revealed God to us. But the scripture tells us that there are certain things that we can learn about God apart from God's revelation of himself in Christ. And so I think there are two major things that the scripture talks about, what we can know about God in that fashion. First of all, it says that God reveals himself through his creation. We can know that there is a creator behind the creation. The Apostle Paul states this clearly in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Since what, we can, what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made. Now some of you maybe have taken the philosophy class and you looked at the proofs for the existence of God, and one of those is the argument from design, <laughs> that there is, must be a designer because of the design of creation. And the scripture affirms that. You know, Psalm 19 says that the creation speaks to us. 
about who is behind the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The creation is speaking to us about the creator, that there is one who is behind this. Fred Hoyle, the scientist who coined the phrase the Big Bang uh, to describe the origins of the universe, mocked at chance being the source of all that we have. He said that the world coming into being by chance is as likely as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. There has to be a designer behind all this. If we listen to creation, we will hear the creator. Alan Lightman, a physicist, an MIT prof, also taught the humanities. And he was particularly interested in the interface between science and, and faith. And he illustrates how God speaks through creation. His wife is an artist, and so they had a, an, a little house on an island that you can only get to by boat. And one night, late at night, he was going to that island by boat, and he describes what happened to him. One night, I was coming back to the island in my boat late at night. It was a clear night. The stars were bristling in the sky. I turned off the engine, lay down in the boat, and looked up into the sky. I felt like I was falling into infinity, he writes. I felt like I was merging with something larger than myself. I was connecting with something permanent and ethereal. What would we call that? God. So the first thing we can know in terms of natural revelation is that there is a creator who created things. These eternal power and deity is made known through what he has created. But the second thing scripture says that we can know from natural revelation is that there is a moral being that impinges upon our own moral nature. That there is a holy God to whom we are accountable. That we are moral beings and we have an internal sense of right and wrong. It's based upon a standard outside of ourselves. I know in our culture today, we say there are no moral absolutes. Each one of us makes up our own moral laws. We're a buyer's. But none of us can live that way. Particularly when we are wronged, we appeal to a standard that says, I was wrong because of this standard. C.S. Lewis begins his book, Mere Christianity, with the argument for morality as the basis for the existence of God. And he says, all of us have appealed to a standard outside of ourselves all the time, and we are not even aware of it. We say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? What's it, what are they saying by that? There's a standard by which things are being measured. That's my seat. I was there first. Ah, there must be an order of things to which you are appealing. So contained in each one of these statements is the belief that there is kind of a right and wrong that there's a universal norm uh, to which we measure ourselves. There is a presentation of the gospel that some of you, I'm sure, have come across over the years called the Four Spiritual Laws. And the Four Spiritual Laws begins this way. Just as there are physical laws that govern the universe, so there are spiritual laws which govern your relationship with God. So what can we know about God through the nature of things? Apart from revelation in Christ, what can we know about God? Well, Scripture says two things, that there is a creator, a designer, and that there is a moral being to whom we are accountable because he's placed that moral law in our hearts. So what's the implications of that? When we are sharing the gospel with people, there is something we know 
that they know. We know that they know that those two things are true. They may not acknowledge it, but it's, the no it's knowledge that has been given uh, to everyone. But then we move on to another kind of revelation. What does general revelation do? Well, it leaves a huge gap. There's a lot of questions that general revelation does not answer. Who is this God? What qualities does he or she possess? What's the name of this God? Is God truly knowable in a personal way? Natural revelation doesn't tell us the answer to those questions. We need more revelation. And that's what we call special or supernatural revelation. And Paul talks about that here in this text. We're totally beholding to God to reveal his identity to us. There was a movie that came out in 1997. Some of you might recall this film called Contact. And Contact was a war-winning film. The character, uh, main character in this was obsessed with extraterrestrial life, getting in touch with that. Jodie Foster plays the character of an astrophysicist, and she is involved with the SETI project, a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And she sets up these computers and relay systems and satellite dishes trying to be in touch with some life out there. And the whole movie is in anticipation of connection from extraterrestrial life. Then all of a sudden, the speakers begin to pulsate. The rhythmic sound comes from outside of this world. Contact is made. I would assert that contact has been made, not with extraterrestrial life, but with supernatural life. Special revelation has occurred. And that revelation has come in the form of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. We believe we are the visited planet. The invisible God became visible in the person of Jesus Christ. The mystery has been solved. The identity of God has been made known in the person of Christ. Paul talks about Jesus as the image, or the Greek word here is the icon of God. Now, what does this word image or icon mean? You might say to me, I thought human beings were the image of God. I mean, it says in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So how can Jesus be the image of God and we be the image of God? How do we reconcile uh, both of those statements? Well, there's a big difference here. Jesus is the image of God, and we were made in the image of God. Well, maybe I need to clarify that even more, <laughs> drill down a little bit. Remember in the creeds, the confession is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, that he was begotten and not made. Ever remember that, reading that in creeds? What does that mean, begotten, not made? Well, C.S. Lewis helps us here. He says there's a big distinction between being begotten and made. When we beget, he says, you beget something of the same nature as yourself. A man and a woman together beget human beings. A beaver begets little beavers. But when you make, you make something different from yourself. People make cars. A beaver makes dams. <laughs> so when God begets his son in his image, the son is the same as and equal to. God. When God makes human beings, they are different from and less than. So Jesus is the image of God, 
we were made less than the image of God in the creation of ourselves. So icon here uh, means that Jesus is the manifestation of God. We sometimes use that word image as a copy, maybe a forgery. Was Jesus a good forgery of God? No. Paul means to say that Jesus is the manifestation of God uh, to us, the material, visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus uh, underscores this in his conversation with Philip. Philip is inquiring about who Jesus is, and, and Jesus responds to Philip, I've been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the expression of the Father to us. So the divinity of Jesus is a staggering claim that we Christians assert. God's identity has been unveiled, contact has been made, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is the last word about God. But secondly, Jesus is the last word about creation. And Paul asserts three things here in terms of Jesus' relationship to creation. First thing is that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Second thing is that Jesus is the means by which creation comes into being. Third thing is that Jesus is this power that sustains all creation. I mean, that's quite a statement. Preeminent over, the means by which it comes into being, and the power that sustains all creation. Jesus assert, Paul asserts that Jesus is preeminent over creation when he uses this phrase in, in verse 15, that he is the firstborn over all creation. You ever wonder what that phrase firstborn means? Does it sound like first to be born? Was Jesus born at a particular point in time? Was there a time when Jesus was not, that he didn't exist? No, firstborn has to do with preeminence, sovereignty over all creation. It has nothing to do with time. It has to do with that, that sense that Jesus is the ruler over all. Uh, scripture refers to Israel as God's firstborn son, meaning that all of God's people on earth, uh, the Lord chose them as the, spirit, spirit, uh, the special people. Scripture says of King David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn has to do with being preeminent over all creation. Another way of speaking of Jesus' preeminence is in verse 17. He is before all things. Prior to any creation coming into being, Jesus always was, is what Paul is saying. Amazing statement. The implication here is that the creation began at a point in time, but Jesus was prior to creation. Over the last, I would say, couple of generations, there has been a consensus um, within the scientific community that there was a big bang that started it all. The discovery was that the earth, the, the universe is rapidly expanding. Hubble and his telescopes and others had noticed the, that uh, there was an initial place from which everything exploded, and now there's an ever-expanding universe. Einstein said, the circumstances of an expanding universe are irritating. <laughs> why, was it, why was that irritating for Einstein? Because it had been believed at that point that the, of the steady-state universe, that material world was eternal, that all we have is the cosmos. There is no room for God. But now that there's an expanding universe, a time from which everything began and started, you have to start asking the question, 
How did it begin? Who began it? Uh, is the question there. The late Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist, was the director of NASA's Goddard Center of, Goddard Center of uh, Space Studies, and considered himself an agnostic, but he liked to poke fun at his fellow scientists who refused, because of their anti-God attitude, to go where the evidence lay it, led. And he wrote an article with a very intriguing title, In the Beginning, the Bang, a Big One. And he concluded the article with a jab at his fellow scientists uh, that would not admit that maybe the Bible had a point here. So this is where he concluded. For the scientists who live by his faith in the power of reason, or in other words, the scientific method, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock and is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Jesus is preeminent over and prior to all creation. Jesus is the means by which creation has come into being. Verse 16, we read, For by him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are created by him and for him. What role did Jesus have in creation? Well, it says Jesus is the means by which all things were created. But how do we understand that? Let me see if I can use an analogy here. What's the difference in the roles between an architect and a builder? What's an architect do? He has an imagination, or she has imagination. Sees something that can be, puts this down on paper or on a computer screen. But what good would that be unless there was a builder who could take that imagination and bring it into reality? So it seems to me that the, the roles distinctions between the father and the son were that the father had the imagination for creation, and Jesus was the one that brought all creation into being. He is the means by which creation has come. And then finally, Jesus is the sustainer that holds all creation together. I love this statement in, in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or all things cohere. What's the energy that holds the universe together? What's at the basis of all of it? Paul is saying Jesus is the energy that keeps all the creation together. Remove Jesus from creation, and it all explodes apart. That's what he's saying here. Wow. When we human beings start to, cre to contemplate the size of the universe, our, our heads kind of get in a muddle, don't they? I mean, here we are on this little dusty ball, one little piece of, of, of a planet in the massive expanse of this universe. Let me just give you kind of one illustration to give you a hernia between your ears. Uh, <laughs> How far away is the sun from the Earth? Come on, everybody knows this. 93 million miles, right? Okay. So it, light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second, so it takes 8.3 minutes for the sun to travel, the rays of the sun to get here to Earth. If you were to get in a car and decide you were going to drive to the sun at 65 miles an hour and not stop, it would take you 163 years to get there. That's quite a distance. But think of it this way. There is a star in the Milky Way universe called Antares. 
if you put that star where the sun is located today, the earth would be inside of that star. That's how large that is. And that's just one, you know, you start talking about light years and the miles in light years. It's just beyond comprehension. Well, let's bring it down to something closer to us. What's the, what is there about God's design that brings awe to you? I think about the human body. We live with our bodies on such a day-to-day existence uh, that we don't even think about the wonder of how our bodies are made. A couple months ago, I had an excision of my left arm. A, a basal cell carcinoma was removed. Nice 10 stitches placed in my arm there. My guess is, if you didn't know that I had had that surgery, you couldn't even find it on my arm. Why does the body know how to heal itself? Isn't that amazing? That it just sets out to to restore itself when something like that happens? But it's so commonplace, we don't even think about it. Why do we see color? Why do the rods and cones in our eyes able to match the various hues and colors that we have out there? How did that happen? It's a wonder, isn't it? The creation in which we live. So the question is, who holds this all together? What's the energy behind the very core of life? What's the source of the Big Bang to begin with as it is? The scientist scales back, scales the mountains of ignorance peers over the top and finds theologians resting upon revelation pointing to Jesus. He's the one. It's the source of all things. So Jesus is the last word about God. Jesus is the last word about creation. And then finally, Jesus is the last word about redemption or reconciliation. There's a lot more I could say about uh, this passage of Scripture, but let's go straight to verse 20 at the end of our text here. It says, Through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the reconciling agent. Now, as soon as we use the word reconciliation, we're saying there's a problem. We need to be reconciled. There's enmity between God and man because of our sin, because we have broken a relationship with the holy God. But God himself sets out to bridge that gap and bring us back into relationship uh, with himself. Now, sometimes an old truth like this can be best seen by looking at it through the lens of another culture. So let me tell you a story about this. There's a missionary by the name of Don Richardson. Uh, Don Richardson has the belief that there is a redemptive image in every culture that allows us to be able to understand the message of the gospel and interpret it to a culture that has not grasped the gospel yet. He, along with his family ministered among a cannibalistic people in, in New Guinea called the Sawi people. Cannibalistic people do what? They eat human flesh. This was a Stone Age people. They, they arrived there in the early 1960s. And he was in search of an image that would help him under, them understand the nature of the gospel. He believed that that was all possible. And finally, that image came to the fore. The Sawis and the Hamans were mortal enemies. And the highest value among the Sawis and the Hamans was the value of treachery. What? 
Yeah, you suck people in, you get them to trust you, and then they become your next meal. That was their highest value. If they could pull that off, then they congratulated themselves. And then when Don Richardson was reading to them the gospel, who was the hero in the story? Judas was the hero in the story. They cheered when his name was mentioned. Because he betrayed Jesus, his treachery was valued uh, to them. But finally, there came an image, an opportunity for them to see the gospel message uh, on display. So even people who are involved in treachery, who are fighting each other, get tired of the fighting. And they finally have to kind of try to make peace. But how do people who think treachery is the highest value ever make peace? How do you ever trust someone in that way? Well, the Hamans and the Sawwees wanted to make peace. And peace was uh, sprinkling cold water on each other. And the elders from the Sawwe people lined up in one way, and then the elders with the, from the Hamans were across from them. And Kayo, an elder within the Sawi people, presented his six-month-old baby boy to the, to the Hamans. And the Hamans gave their six-month-old child to the, to the Sawis. They called this child the peace child, the Teraptim, because there was some value higher than treachery. As long as the peace child was living with their enemy, then they would not commit treachery against each other. They could be at peace with each other. And of course, Don Richardson immediately saw here the point of connection. Just as Cayo in agony gave up his only son, so God gave up his only beloved son as well. Jesus is God's peace child to us. He's the one that died on our behalf and rose again from the dead so that we could have peace with God. Our sin taken away from us and could accept the, the, the forgiveness. And the people saw that. Now, a postscript here. When the Sawis found out that Judas had betrayed the peace child, he was no longer a hero. The worst thing you could do was betray the peace child. And so their value system got turned upside down, inside out. So we see this picture here of God's reconciling work through the person of Christ, that he is the last word about God. He's the last word about creation. He's the last word about redemption. If your God is too small this morning, let that God expand. before. If you are bringing before him challenges and problems, reframe your life around the size of this God that we serve. You might have seen the little book that says, don't sweat the small stuff because most of it is small stuff. That really becomes true when you expand your image of who Jesus is in your life. I can think of no better summary of Paul's description of Jesus uh, than these words of Brennan Manning. So let this word picture uh, surround you. If I ask myself, what am I doing walking around the planet? Why do I exist? As a disciple of Jesus, I must answer for the sake of Jesus Christ. If the angels ask, it's the same answer. We exist for the sake of Jesus Christ. If the entire universe were suddenly to become articulate, from north to south and east to west, it would cry out in a chorus, we exist for the sake of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus would issue from the seas and mountains and valleys. It would be tapped out by the pattering rain. It would be written in the skies by the lightning. 
The storms would roar the name Jesus Christ and the mountains would echo it back. The sun on its westward march through the heavens would chant a thunderous hymn. The whole universe is full of Christ. And we get to know that God. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed your heart and life to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That he actually walked this planet, divinity in human form, the one who's the creator of all things, the one who sustains it all and holds it all together, the one who, through the cross, was the reconciling agent in our lives. We give you thanks for that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.